Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Gabe Paquette, Dean of the Robert D. Clark Honors College and Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Prior to joining the UO faculty in fall 2018, Paquette taught at Johns Hopkins University for nearly a decade. Paquette's work focuses on the history of European empires, intellectual history, Portuguese and Spanish history, and the history of international relations. He's the author of two monographs, Enlightenment, Government, and Reform in Spain and its Empire, 1759 to 1808, and Imperial Portugal in the Age of Atlantic Resolu Revolutions, the Luso-Brazilian World, 1770 through 1850, as well as a number of edited volumes and critical editions. His forthcoming monograph is titled The European Seaborne Empires from the Thirty Years' War to the Age of Revolutions. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with your uh, career trajectory. Tell us about that and what led in particular to your interest in the history of European empires. Well, I always loved history from the time I was a little boy and uh, I was always fascinated by Europe and I worked in a coffee and tea store and saved all my money uh, during the academic year so that I could undertake a trip to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I managed after my freshman year at college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut uh, to buy a rail pass and, like many other students, um, travel around Western Europe. And one of the things that I became aware of uh, that summer was just how much the, uh, the history of Europe was marked by its engagement with the wider world. And in many ways that the history of Europe was very much the history of its interactions with the wider world, mm -hmm. the way it had been affected by, um, for example, its involvement in the slave trade. Uh, the ways in which its empires actually had contributed to what Marx called primitive accumulation, and the ways in which uh, many of the monuments and other splendid things that one encounters as a tourist traveling through Western Europe actually were the fruits in many regards of empire. And I wanted to know more about that, and I wanted to know more about the justifications uh, that Europeans gave both to themselves and to others for those undertakings. So what led to your particular focus on the historical period between the Thirty Years' War and the Age of Revo Revolutions. I know, I mean, imperialism started in the early modern period and it continued largely up until the 19th century, the late 19th century. So say what, what was that the period in the history of empire that you were interested in? Um, yes, and I, and I guess in answering your, your first question, I, I didn't really talk about how I ended up deciding to go to graduate school, but we can get back to that okay. um, later if that's of interest. Well. I was struck by a paradox, and I think oftentimes many research questions begin with a paradox, which was, um, as a, growing up in the United States, learning about the history of the American Revolution, um, thinking about a story of anti-colonialism and how ideas that are associated with the Enlightenment inspired a anti-colonial um, revolt, supposedly as the history goes, mm -hmm. which, re which resulted uh, in the independence of a nation state supposedly imbued with those values. Mm -hmm. I was interested in why, when I looked towards the 19th century, there was an acceleration, for example, in uh, the number of enslaved Africans brought to the Americas, more in the 19th century after the putative age of revolutions than actually in the centuries before. I looked at, for example, the survival of monarchy in Brazil. I looked at the ways that uh, liberal values in post-independent Spanish America actually led to the dispossession of indigenous peoples. And so I became interested in this paradox. There was, you know, ideas of, uh, you know, famously, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and more than that, uh, 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 commitments to representative government, 
which ultimately went unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. So I became interested, you know, by and large, in um, how it was the Enlightenment never actually produced uh, a social revolution, and in many ways an incomplete political revolution, in spite of the fact that when you're studying the history of Europe in the 18th century, and really, you know, from the end of the 17th through the 18th century, one gets a sense that this is an age in which old ideas are being challenged, uh, old institutions are being subjected to a rational gaze, they're being undermined, and that resu results in revolution, which is supposedly transformational. Um, and I was interested, actually, in really in many ways, how Enlightenment was used for different purposes. Um, we might say more nefarious purposes, assorted purposes, actually that resulted in the centralization of states mm -hmm. and their ability to project power and deprive uh, individuals striving for liberty of that liberty itself. So those are the sorts of paradoxes that made me interested in the long 18th century, um, sort of beginning, uh, yeah, I guess you could say, uh, in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, 1648-1652, and ending uh, in the first decade of the 19th century. And I just found that period of time so fascinating for a range of reasons, some of which I've just articulated, but also because this is the coalescence of not only nation-states, but actually also um, empires uh, which uh, no longer make a distinction between uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of metropole uh, and the colony, but actually are um, transatlantic polities mm -hmm. uh, in which many of the sort of ideas and institutions that animate one side of the Atlantic are also found uh, on the other. And I sort of thought this is an age of acceleration, an accelerated, you know, proto-globalization. And I think, you know, in the early 2000s and thinking about, uh, in many ways, thinking about the end of the 17th century into the 18th century as an important antecedent of our own time. Mm -hmm. Uh, say a little bit about why, in particular, Spain and Portugal. Why, why does that make sense, given your interests? Well, I think, you know, in some ways, I, I have to admit two things. One is that I just love the Spanish and Portuguese languages. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, don't admit uh, that. You know, and then also, you know, I think as a graduate student, uh, being someone who, who loves those languages and loves those cultures and wanting to study topics which, in other national and linguistic contexts, are have been studied, you know, uh, quite quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, there was very little on the Enlightenment in Spanish and Portuguese written in English, mm -hmm. and I thought this was a major opportunity to think about um, the Enlightenment sort of beyond national context and also in a transatlantic dimension because of the importance of the Spanish mm -hmm. uh, of empire to the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I could say something interesting about the Enlightenment altogether by beginning from one of its peripheries. Uh, a place where many, well, some have said, well, there was Spain and Portugal didn't have enlightenments, mm -hmm. and that's patently untrue. Mm -hmm. um, but also, if they had enlightenments, they were just derivations. Uh, they were latecomers. They were, uh, in many ways, uh, pale um, uh, reflections of what was actually happening in France. The light sort of radiating from Paris and from the Philosophes perhaps made their way across the Pyrenees, but uh, incompletely, imperfectly. Uh, and certainly um, not in any kind of widespread, pervasive way. And so I actually, you know, became fascinated with the subject, and I discovered this, well, discovered, that's probably the wrong word, but I encountered this remarkable literature in Spanish and Portuguese that had scarcely made its way into the English language literature. And I said, well, this is really, perhaps I can sort of serve a role of conduit between Anglophone uh, scholarship and Hispano and Lusophone scholarship. And that's essentially what, what started me on this, uh, this journey that has resulted in our conversation today. So tell us about the forthcoming book, The European Seaborne Empires. Give us a sense of what the sort of project of that book is. Sure. Uh, I, I would love to. You, you know, 
the word seaborne is uh, a somewhat archaic word. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not used uh, <laughs> all that much, you know, in, in ordinary conversation. But it was a word that in the 1950s and 60s was used quite a lot, and it was used uh, by historians at the really the cusp of the great age of decolonization, in Britain in particular. Uh, two figures, J. H. Parry and Charles Boxer, who wrote books with those very titles: mm -hmm. the Spanish Seaborne Empire, uh, the Portuguese Seaborne Empire, the British Seaborne Empire. Um, written by another historian, Jeremy Black. Um, and they were referring to the maritime character of those empires and thinking about them in national context. By and large, they were apologetic accounts. Mm -hmm. They were triumphalist accounts. How was it that these you know, small peripheral states um, in Europe actually became world powers whose authority was projected across the globe uh, and to vast swaths of human population and, and territory? And I thought to myself, Wow, what would actually what would we do if we took all of the specialist scholarship that's developed in the last fifty to sixty years, in relation to forced migration, forced labor, gender history, um, the history of ideas, and tried to update those older accounts for our own time? What would that look like? So in many ways, it was sort of a historiographical mm -hmm, exercise. Mm -hmm. um, how can we tell a narrative account of the European empires? which tries to decenter nationalism, which is not an apologetic account for, you know, for empire, and one that takes into account scholarship that by and large has sort of undermined the foundations of the triumphalist account, which uh, Parry and Boxer and others who wrote books with the title of the Seaborne Empires had, um, had indulged in. And so the argument of the book, you know, partly is that uh, we've made a mistake when we've tried to look at the differences between empires, but instead we actually have to look at what I would call institutional isomorphism, mm -hmm. the way in which in the 17th into the 18th century, empires began to resemble each other more and more. And that occurred really because of a sort of competitive emulation. Mm -hmm. And contemporaries were aware of that. This is not a historian's conceit. Mm -hmm. Contemporaries were aware of the fact that they were borrowing from one empire or another as part of this sort of grand competition. Mm -hmm. And so part of the argument of the book is that we witness, as we move towards the age of revolutions and the end of the, the 18th century, convergence in the type of institutions and ideas uh, that characterized the European empires. Not that it was a common project, it was actually generated by competition, mm -hmm. but there was an important convergence across the globe uh, as a result of that competition. Um, and so that's, you know, that's part of the argument of the book, but it really begins by this, it begins with a question about the, um, the rather the, the peripheral quality of the Western European states. When the Spanish and Portuguese began their age of exploration, um, the Mughals, for example, were already you know, an empire that um, uh, uh, ruled over m much, of, uh, much of South Asia. Of course, then one can look to China as well. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to sort of demonstrate and suggest the peripheral character of those empires and then try to explain how was it that these peripheral states managed to leverage overseas resources, not only to enrich themselves within Europe, but actually also then uh, to extend their authority overseas. It's a bit of a mystery, and I sort of try to pose it as a, as a riddle. There's nothing inevitable about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a real difference from the accounts of the, early, of the late 1950s and early 60s, which assumed that there was something special about Europe, hmm. some set of endowments it had, which hmm. made inevitable um, mm -hmm. the conquest of vast swaths of the, of the globe. We now know that that's not the case. What does the history of those empires look like when we no longer have those sorts of assumptions of European superiority? And so for you, in the, in the, in the 
book, this, the European seaborne empires are Spain and Portugal? No, so I, 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 uh, it's Spain, Portugal, Britain, France, mm -hmm. uh, and the Dutch Republic. Okay. And so I look at all five of those. I, I unfortunately have to neglect the Danish uh, and a few others. But, <laughs> well, you can't do everything. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I only had 100,000 words for my publisher. <laughs> um, can you say something about the consequences and the legacies of the imperialism of that period? You know, how they, w in, in particular during the Age of Re Revolutions, but also after that? Uh, yes, um, I, I think I can. I mean, it, in the 19th century, contemporaries were aware, whether or not in South America or North America, of how much uh, they actually uh, were products of, you know, children of centuries, in some cases, in, in the case of uh, Spain and Portugal, mm -hmm. of empire. What were some of those legacies? Well, some of the legacies were actually um, ones of path dependency, reliance on the extraction of precious metals mm -hmm. um, and other, you know, we would say commodities, uh, which around which their economies were oriented and as a result around which their um, politics were oriented. So, for example, in 19th century Latin America, the chief source of revenue that many of the new states that became independent in the early 19th century derived was from tariffs uh, and various forms of export taxes. That was very much sort of a legacy of the colonial economy which bent on a certain form of uh, expropriation. Mm -hmm. Similarly, um, I think that, uh, and here I'm thinking more of uh, Spanish and Portuguese America, uh, we see um, very distinct legacies of slavery which you know, carry on to this day, right? Essentially the effective disenfranchisement of, of people of color, especially of African descent, but also of indigenous groups. Mm -hmm. All that is very much a legacy of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the empires. Now, in North America, this is kind of where I, where I started because, of course, I, I grew up in New York mm -hmm. and went to undergraduate in the United States before I went overseas uh, for my graduate work. I, was, you know, I began to think in terms of, you know, how is it that the United States is not so much exceptional but actually shares very much with the rest of the Americas? Uh, in terms of being itself a product of an empire, not just of an empire, but actually an empire that was largely peripheral and unimportant in comparison with the Spanish and Portuguese mm -hmm. empires. Um, in uh, 1800, per capita GDP in Havana or Mexico City dwarfed that of the most important cities in, um, uh, in British North America, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. In Spanish America in uh, 1700, there were uh, I think e just 17 or 18, depending on how you, how you count them, universities that had been in existence for over 200 years in Spanish America and three in British North America. And so I, I, I became interested in you know, actually trying to explain what's almost a mystery, which is how is it that the United States, which was itself at the time I began my study, really undis you know, impossible to disguise the fact that it was a power with imperial pretensions. Mm -hmm. How did it emerge from really a, being very much kind of a, a backward uh, periphery relative to other European uh, empires uh, and actually then emerge to, global head, to become a global hegemon? Um, and so that was kind of the context in which I was growing up uh, and therefore I was interested in trying to situate my own experience and my own country in that, that broader global framework. So before we move to a discussion about the Clark Honors College. I just want to ask you one other question. So I'm, I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. You're a historian. Yes. You've, you've said many things that uh, implicitly and in some cases explicitly talk about the value 
of history, mm. the importance mm -hmm. of history. Why does history matter? Why is that something that people should study? I don't believe, although I wish I could believe, that there are any uh, moral lessons uh, that the past can impart uh, to us. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the reasons to study history until really the early 20th century was precisely that, to gain examples and uh, find exemplars that would help to guide current conduct and present action. Um, I don't believe that that's actually the, the function of history. What I do think um, the benefit of studying history is, is to recognize the complexity in which we all operate, which we don't have access to in the present, mm -hmm. that can only be recovered through the study of a series of documents, including oral histories, that put us in a position to not only appreciate complexity, but then recognize the broader context in which we're operating. Um, to recognize that historical actors are sometimes completely unaware of the broader forces that are shaping the types of decisions and the types of choices um, that they actually have, and so that their exercise of agency is actually one which is remarkably circumscribed. And so I think that the study of history really is, um, I think the purpose is to inject into our lives a certain level of humility, uh, intellectual and otherwise. Excellent. So. Um, Last question on your scholarship. This, uh, the, the book uh, that's in progress, uh, do you know when it will be published? May 28th. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you I, definitely I've, uh, do. <laughs> I, I returned the, uh, the corrected proofs a couple of weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very well, much. Well, we look forward to the publication. Thank you very much. So um, you've uh, already told us about your exceptional scholarship, no, your you. uh, very successful career as a scholar. You. You've now m m taken a different turn. Mm -hmm. You've uh, come to the University of Oregon to be the dean of the Clark Honors College. So what attracted you to that, to this school, to that position, to that institution? Yeah. Well, I'm really happy to be here, and I've had the best experience so far in my, my first quarter. Um, it actually has exceeded my expectations, and they were already very lofty expectations, so it gives you a sense of um, how enjoyable it's been. So I was teaching uh, at Johns Hopkins, which is a wonderful institution, a graduate institution. Uh, that is, it was founded as a Institute for, for Graduate Training, and I became involved in thinking about what would an undergraduate program at an institution which is primarily oriented towards research look like. Mm -hmm. And I became aware of the fact that the things that I cared most about, the liberal arts, were actually uh, in many ways uh, under attack. Now that shouldn't have been surprising to anyone. We've been talking about the crisis of humanities in liberal arts for quite some time. But I thought, well, if I really care about th these sorts of things, and if they've influenced my life, these forms of study, these types of ideas for such a long time, don't I, don't I want to make sure that in some small way um, that others can enjoy and benefit from the things that I've experienced, that they can study the sorts of things that I've had the opportunity and the privilege of studying. And therefore, moving into an administrative role was deeply appealing to me, the ability to reach a larger number of students and actually also, you know, given my own background, um, um, there was sort of a mobility of the intellect which college gave me mm -hmm. that I hope to give to other students who um, might not you know, necessarily have thought that university and the study of the liberal arts were um, in their future. And so the idea of coming here and working at a, you know, a, a, a public institution which has uh, remarkable resources and making sure that I can connect students with those resources across campus to ensure that they are uh, being imbued with skills, writing, speaking, et cetera, um, that are necessary for success in any walk of life, whether academic or, or, or non-academic. 
that was really appealing. I mean, the, I think the real question was, how can I apply for a job uh, like that? Um, I also like the fact that the Honors College, I mean, as a historian, was one of the very, very first, if not the first, um, attempts by those who cared most about universities and about undergraduate education to say, we must carve out a space mm -hmm. in the research university for undergraduate education where the best traditions of the academy, debate, discussion, sharing of ideas, interdisciplinary thinking occur and are encouraged and are celebrated. And um, that's why I think an honors college like the Clark Honors College really appealed to me and that's why I'm so excited to be here. I didn't even know about the beautiful Chapman Hall when I, when <laughs> I applied. So. Um, you've, you've sort of started to answer my next question, but I'll, I'll ask you to say a little bit more. What's particularly unique about the kind of liberal arts education that you could get at a place at, at the Clark Honors College? So I, you, you, you've already mentioned that you attended mm -hmm. Wesleyan's, one of the great liberal arts mm -hmm. colleges in the country, mm -hmm. though it is not housed in the center of a research university. No, right. So say a little bit about what's unique about the Clark Honors College in that regard. That's right. I mean, I think it, in many ways it has some of the best traditions of freestanding liberal arts colleges, the small courses, um, um, I think the commitment to interdisciplinarity or sort of transdisciplinary um, thinking. But one can find that at many other institutions. What one finds at an honors college like the Clark Honors College, but not at a freestanding, wonderful liberal arts college like the one I attended, mm -hmm. is the fact that it's nested in, uh, embedded in a major research university and all of the opportunities that that actually affords students. Working in a lab, studying with a faculty member who, in the humanities, you know, and working as their, as their research assistant for someone who's written several books, right, and actually actively involved in the, in the profession. That's something that's very difficult to get at other, you know, at smaller institutions, in spite of the fact that there are wonderful scholars there too, of course. The other thing is, I think we have a unique opportunity here at the University of Oregon, um, although I would think that other institutions that have honors colleges also have this opportunity, to actually make a new case for the liberal arts, which perhaps hasn't been made before. Mm -hmm. There has always been this sort of notion that the pure and the practical are antithetical. I think there's always been a sense that in some ways the liberal arts are the opposite of a pre-professional education. I think actually here we can make the case for how the liberal arts prepare students for the professions themselves. And I think there are opportunities that are already being developed for BA, MA programs where a student can study a humanities discipline like one of ours and actually still go on to receive a professional degree and come to realize that actually their liberal arts training gives them a distinct advantage. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we kind of transcend those binaries, um, that sort of conceptual dualism that separates out professional education from the liberal arts, we have a real opportunity to make a case for the liberal arts themselves in a moment uh, when students are increasingly in debt, you know, and when their families are assuming uh, uh, and, you know, those sorts of financial burdens, which force students to think about what comes next. How am I going to pay off my debt? How am I going to support my family? Um, I, I want to make sure they don't jettison the liberal arts. I want to make sure that they enjoy the things that I've you know, come to enjoy and been privileged enough to enjoy. And I think that we have a real opportunity to do that here because of the richness not only of our research infrastructure, but actually also of our world-class professional schools. So I'm really excited about it, and I hopefully you know, the students will also be, I, my job as dean is to connect the students that we have in the Honors College with all these opportunities across campus. And that includes our world-class faculty with whom they don't always 
managed to, to connect, and maybe I could say more about that in a second. Yeah, so why don't you say more about that now? <laughs> yeah, okay, perfect. <laughs> well, uh, we have uh, a remarkable, um, uh, what was called, you know, a residential faculty. Um, I mean, many, I, I'm always surprised that there's a um, disproportionate number of teaching award winners in the Clark Honors College mm -hmm, faculty, mm -hmm. committed teachers, um, but they're also committed teachers across campus. Um, and I want to make sure that one of the real wonderful things that I think the new faculty model has opened up is the possibility of many professors who want to engage and teach students in a small, intimate class setting uh, have access to uh, uh, their remarkable students across the university, but I think a real sort of density of, of students who are committed to that kind of small-scale debate. I want to make sure that the faculty across the university have the opportunity to interact with those students. Mm -hmm. Early on in their uh, early on in their academic careers, mm -hmm. to perhaps even steer them into majors across the university. So, I think the, you know the president and the provost have talked about making the honors college the university's honors college, and I think really what that means is ensuring that the students who enter into the honors college can have the maximum number of opportunities to interact with faculty in the professional schools in CAS across the entire university, um, and and that's really something I'm very excited to do to try to connect more faculty to our remarkable students in the Honors College. So we just have a couple of minutes sure. left. I think I could probably ask, ask you two questions, but we'll see how you respond. Um, say something about how the Honors College fosters undergrad research. You've begun to speak about that. Um, every <coughs> single Honors College student who's graduated from the Honors College since its inception has written a thesis, a thesis that has to be defended um, sometimes publicly, but certainly in front of, uh, certain in front of faculty. The entire honors college experience culminates in the thesis. It's often, we often talk about capstones that are just a senior year project. The honors college actually is a guided pathway to undertaking that type of research. Um, and one of the things I'm, I find most impressive is if you go to the third floor of Chapman Hall and you walk into the library and you see actually a very small percentage of the theses that have been written by our students. So it's really, it's, it's baked into the DNA of the, um, uh, of the honors college. Uh, last question. Um, tell me about an experience you've had since you've come to Oregon that was particularly memorable for you, whether it's a university experience or a state of Oregon or a Eugene, Oregon experience. Well, I have two little kids, so I don't get out very much. But when I do, um, I think just walking around campus as the leaves were changing and the foliage and running into all sorts of colleagues that I didn't imagine I would sort of you know, bump into. Um, the compact nature of the campus and its beauty, um, these are things I didn't expect and actually have, I, I would have come anyway if those things didn't exist, but they certainly have augmented and uh, greatly um, enriched my experience. Well, you have many more experiences like that to come for you, I can tell you that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, Gabe Paquette, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Gabe Paquette, the new dean of the Robert D. Clark Honors College and a professor of history at the University of Oregon. Thank you so much for watching.